Well, if you could open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This morning we are going to talk a little bit about baptism. Baptism initiates a rhythm of the Christian life. So Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says this. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, we're going to kind of get rolling into some things here, but but I have to do some clarification first. So, So the book of Romans, for what it's worth, is incredibly logical. Like, in fact, it's written a little bit like a legal document. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as he writes it, kind of walks through this process of going, you know, X is true, and because X is true, then Y must be true. And if Y is true, then Z must be true. And he kind of walks you through this process of trying to understand the step-by-step-by-step uh, logic that he's going through. And, and so Paul, he knows his audience really, really well, and he is anticipating their questions, right? So, so he knows that their thinking is along the wrong lines, right? He is aware of this. And so uh, he, he kind of like looks at them and he's anticipating kind of how they think about things. And so we're coming to this kind of point in his logic where he knows that they're going to say something along the lines of, well, if it's not X, then it must be Y. Like, if this is not true, if, if not this, then this, right? So this is kind of like my oldest daughter. She does this. Like, uh, it's time to eat lunch. And I say, Autumn, it's time to eat lunch. She's two and a half. She's a toddler, by the way. I say, Autumn, it's time to eat lunch. And she goes, uh, we eating donuts? Uh, and I say, no, we're not eating donuts. And she says, oh, ice cream. Right, so, right, if not this, then this. But the problem is she's thinking along the entirely wrong lines, right? Because lunch is actually on a different plane, right? Like, we're going to have, like, a turkey sandwich or, uh, like, a hot dog or chicken nuggets, something along those lines. We're not going to have donuts or ice cream, right? So, uh, so it's time to kind of stop that activity, right? So, so I, I imagine, uh, you know, if you are distraught or it's time to like so autumn she's like playing with her toys right and uh she's in the middle of you know uh, having a good time and uh you say okay autumn it's time for you to stop she'll like she'll get really distraught over this she won't want to stop and then uh she'll be kind of frustrated about this and then why does she get distraught well because in her mind she has said if i stop now I will never again do this thing that I am currently doing. Like there's something in her head that says, because he asked me to stop, then uh, I'm never going to be able to do this again. And so she gets really concerned that she won't be able to do it again. And I have to adjust it. It's like, no, you're going to have the chance to do this thing that you're doing again. Like we're not just done entirely. There is like, uh, so I'll have to say, oh, we'll do it later. And then she'll go, oh, we'll do it later, right? So her thinking, she says, if not this, then this. And I'm always having to readjust her thinking. So this is what he, uh, Paul, just finishly, uh, finished telling these Romans. He said, your performance of law does not lead you to acceptance with God. Your performance of law does not save you. Your performance of law does not make you clean. And this is what he says. He says, it is by God's grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus, that a person is accepted with God. It is God's grace that saves and makes a person clean. So Paul, knowing how these people think, uh, kind of thinks, well, if grace means acceptance without performance, then grace must give us freedom to sin, right? If not performance of the law, then freedom to sin. That's what the people hear. And Paul knows that they're thinking along these lines, and anyone who, uh, basically, he's, he's trying to get to them, anybody who's thinking along those lines has fundamentally misunderstood Jesus and his work. Right, So then he comes out in Romans 6, 2, and this is what he says. By no means. right? That's not the way it works. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, this 
phrase, dead to sin, this is the first time this appears in the book of Romans. This concept of having this death to sin. And he's saying, you know what? If you've received grace, something powerful has happened. Powerful enough for it to be called death. Right? So, so there are events in our lives that are so powerful that they establish a new pattern for us. They dictate new rhythms in our lives. And this is really what we're talking about. We're talking about the process of walking through rhythms. So, so an event so powerful in my life that it dictated new rhythms. I got married, right? Which meant, yay, right? Ownership of my stuff changed overnight. It's just insanity. Like my stuff was no longer my stuff. My stuff was our stuff. And if those of you who are a student here, what you know is my stuff was her stuff, right? So, uh, so my stuff became our stuff. Her stuff became our stuff. What this really meant is my money became our money. That was a challenge, y'all. Like this was a change in pattern. I had to be mindful in my spending. Do you know what I was not good at? Being mindful in my spending, right? Because I am accountable to another person who's watching my bank account and knows where my money goes, right? So now, uh, after years of having to change this pattern for me, I think twice every time I spend something. Because I know that someone else might have questions about what I'm spending and whether or not I should be spending it, right? So, uh, so that's one example. Another example for me that was really powerful that established a new pattern, pattern in my life. Um, so in the middle of seminary, I was kind of distraught dealing with uh, things along the lines of depression, anxiety, uh, struggling a lot with, uh, with those kinds of things. And so uh, when I just started in seminary, and so I... Um, I started going through counseling, uh, personal counseling. Somebody helped me understand what was going on. And I gained tools for emotional health and self-awareness. And then the gaining of those tools, like uh, 10 weeks through counseling, every week I was engaged with that counselor. And that became a powerful, positive event in my life where I learned how to process the variety of feelings that I was experiencing. I, I started a pattern in my life that I still engage to this day of journaling, right? And I journal to kind of, under, I write down because my mind and my internal conversation can't always figure out everything that's going on. And I need to sit down and really clarify what's going on. That was a, an incredibly helpful tool that I gained, an incredibly helpful pattern. So these powerful events, they establish a new pattern or dictate a new rhythm of life. And so to this day, actually, uh, my habits have been shaped into the future to where now I am actually, like I'm quick to return to counseling because I know the signs that tell me it's time to return to counseling, right? And for what it's worth, if I did not go to counseling originally, I would have missed those signs a long time ago, and I would be way further down the line than I should be, right? So I learned how to watch for signs. I also have this rhythm of journaling to help me process, right? There's a powerful event that shaped new rhythms into my life. Um, so, so to help these Christians understand the rhythm of life that they're called into, because remember, they think, well, if not performance of the law then uh, freedom to sin, right? That's their logical conclusion. They're trying to, and he's trying to create for them a pattern that they can walk into, that they can actually live out what grace means in their lives. And so Paul is going to call them back to one of the most powerful events in their whole life, their baptism. Right, so, so real quick, just a review of where we're at and what we're even doing in this series. Uh, we are in the middle of a series we just started last week called Rhythms of Renewal. So just to kind of clarify some things that we talked about last week or to, to reflect back on them, this is what rhythms are. Rhythms are the consistent patterns at work in our use of time. The things that we do again and again and again, and we re-engage at certain times. We have structures determining when we engage those patterns and how we engage those patterns, right? And 
what we said last week is that our rhythms determine the quality of our character, right? So the patterns that we engage, actually, like, we don't just decide to be the kind of people that we're going to be. There are patterns in our life that have been built into our life that actually shape us into the people that we become, right? And, and what we figured out last week, too, is that um, if you don't decide what your pattern is, somebody else will decide for you. In fact, uh, I was reading just some articles about kind of the most uh, determining factors in our rhythms and patterns, and I discovered, like, if you don't decide what your patterns will be, you know who's, like, most likely to decide what your patterns will be for you? Your employer, right? If you, if you work a job, they're going to determine how you use your time and what you use it for and how structured. So if you're not intentional about it, something else will be intentional for you. So last week we looked at the rhythm of expectancy. The idea that God is waiting for a people who would occupy themselves uh, with dependence on him, with waiting for him, with looking for him to move in their spheres of influence this week. We are looking at the rhythm of baptism. So, so Paul's going to look at their baptism and call them actually into one of the most fundamental rhythms of the Christian life. So this morning we're going to answer two questions. The first question is, what is baptism? And the second question is, what rhythm does baptism establish? So what is baptism, number one, and then what rhythm does baptism establish? So our first question, what is baptism? We start to answer this question with Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he looks at those who say, well, you know, a gospel of free grace gives people license to live however they want. He's looking at those people who are thinking along those lines, and he says, if you're thinking that, you've actually missed the point of baptism. Because baptism is all about association with the death of Christ. So what happened in Jesus' death? Well, he submitted to the Father's will above his own, saying something like, not my will, but yours be done. He accepted on himself the weight of God's justice and wrath toward all wrongdoing. He resisted fleeing this great suffering up until the moment that he died. Like he did not, uh, remember the guy, uh, if you're so great, then just come down from the cross? And like he could have, but he didn't. He resisted fleeing the suffering up until the point of death. He issued his life for the pay- as payment for the sins of many, right? This is all that took place in the death of Christ. So the, to the fullest extent, Jesus' death was about resisting temptation in order to love God and love others well. And he says, Paul says, we were baptized into that death. That, that there's something about resisting temptation and denying self that is involved in the life that we now live through our baptism. So he goes on, Romans 6, verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, they are powerful identity-shaping realities for the believer in Jesus. Right, so, so let's talk about Jesus' death. How does Jesus' death shape my identity? How about this? Um, I am not the worst thing that I've done. I am not the weakness of my flesh. I am not the failure of my past, present, or my future. Because in Jesus' death, I am forgiven freely by God. Powerful, identity-shaping realities contained within the death of Jesus. So then, it's not just about Jesus' death, but it's about life. So how does Jesus' life shape my identity? I am welcomed joyfully into God's presence. 
right? That means uh, uh, God has uh, kind of set a table for me. He has uh, given me a space at that table. And he says, though you don't deserve it, there is a place for you to be with me. I'm welcomed joyfully into God's presence. I am a part of God's family. What that means is that God would act for me like a father would act for his child. Right? If I am a believer in Jesus, if I've identified with Jesus' death and identified with his resurrection, then uh, I am seen as a, a person whom God would adore and care for and protect. And uh, when the, we read that verse so often in Romans 8 that says he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, right? that is a promise that the believer in Jesus gets to receive. I'm a part of God's family. I am set free from the power of death. Right? Death does not get the final say for me because Jesus' life has shaped my identity. And what that also means is I am given a new purpose. Right? I, I get this new thing that I exist for where Jesus has called me to be one who would extend his life out to other people. I am, finally, I am guaranteed the promises of God. I get to be a recipient of the, the things that God says, the things that God promises for the future. So in Jesus' death and resurrection, everything about me has fundamentally changed. Everything about who I am. I believe Jesus was worth giving everything to. And so uh, though I've lived my life in such a way as to be unworthy of the acceptance of God, as to in fact be rejected by him, as more concerned uh, for myself in my own way than I am for his way, as one who loved sin more than I loved God, Jesus died so that I could be welcomed into relationship with God. So now my identity does not belong to me, but it belongs to him. Because he did for me what I could not do for myself. So what Jesus has accomplished for me is radically identity reshaping. It changes everything about me. So what does any of that have to do with baptism? Well, in the early church, baptism became the public action that marked your new identity. It became the thing that you did. Why? Well, because going down under the water represents the burial. And going under the water, it represents going down into the ground, being buried, being covered over, being dead, and then uh, rising up out of the water, coming out, up out of the water, it represents being raised with Jesus. Right? These, are the, these are the symbols that we engage. So uh, essentially what these believers in Jesus, as their identity was radically reshaped, as their lives were completely changed, they would walk through the action of baptism to, to display the reality of their new identity, to let everybody around them know what it was that they had believed, who they had trusted, how they have been changed. So what is baptism? Baptism is a powerful public symbol of identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? It's a statement. My life used to belong to me, and now it belongs to Jesus. Right? I used to be identified by shame and weakness, and now I'm identified by hope and acceptance. I used to be trapped under the weight of my sin, and now Jesus has set me free. My hope and my future and everything I am belong to Jesus. Right, so what does that mean practically? So, uh, and we are going to talk a little bit about, actually, can we put that one back up? I would really uh, just love to just keep that up there. Um, so what does this mean practically? A powerful public symbol of identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we are going to get kind of like really practical about what that means for us and, and for our church. Uh, the first thing that that means is that we practice at our church what is called believer's baptism. So here at Alliance Bible Church, uh, we practice believer's baptism. We baptize people after they have made a decision to follow Jesus. So what that also means, very specifically, is that it means that we don't baptize infants here. Uh, because we only baptize after we're confident that a person has made their faith their own, 
right? They have had this identity reshaping experience. So that's the first thing that it means. The second thing that it means is that if we can, we seek to dunk people under the water, right? Uh, because this uh, whole idea of immersion, like we go down baptism, the word baptism it literally means submerged, right? So you go down under the water, you come back up out of the water. So the um, we strive to find a way as much as we can for people to go down under the water and up out of the water because of what it represents. Now, I say all that as much as we can and all those qualifiers. If we can, we dunk people because, like, I know of a situation, a church in the middle of COVID, they weren't able to put a person under the water, so they took uh, five-gallon buckets of water and dumped it on the person as they stood in a pool. It was actually pretty amazing. So, yeah, like I say, as much as we can, we strive to uh, dunk people under the water. So a uh, quick note, Paul, when he is talking about baptism and trying to relate to baptism with people, he has the incredible luxury of talking to like basically one group of people who have had one basic experience with baptism. I don't have that luxury, right? <laughs> like what I acknowledge is that uh, there are people in this church who come from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of traditions. And everybody he's talking to, uh, he, they're pretty much on the same page for you, but not everybody in this room comes from the same background or has had the same experience. So in dealing with the reality of baptism, and maybe you can even think about this as you relate to your friends or your neighbors or people who have questions about baptism, I want this to kind of be a tool for you as well. But I want, uh, there are kind of four kinds of people who might be in the room today or might even be listening online, and we all have a relationship to baptism. So this is uh, four kinds of people in our relation to baptism. So number one, is the non-Jesus follower. So if you have not decided to trust in Jesus, if you've not trusted him as your Lord and Savior, if you've not uh, been what the Bible actually calls born again, then you have no promise of life. Right? Like, think of all the identity statements earlier that we made about uh, what Jesus' death does for us and what Jesus' resurrection does for us. If you don't follow Jesus, then when you die the worst thing that you've done still rests on your shoulders. Like when you die, you're still under sin's power. When you die, you have no basis for forgiveness. Your identity is in you. You have not lived in such a way as to warrant acceptance with God. But Jesus has. And so if you are the person who would kind of not receive Jesus, I want to tell you Jesus is extending to you an offer. Right, you have an invitation this morning, and that invitation is this. Die with Jesus if you want to find life. Die with Jesus if you want to find life. Mark 8, 34 and 35 says this. Jesus was calling the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever dies for my sake... And for the Gospels, we'll save it. Right, so that's uh, the first kind of person in your relationship to baptism. If you have not trusted in Jesus, I would plead with you, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, second person in our relation to baptism, the second person, the unbaptized Jesus follower. So it, it's possible somewhere along the way that there are people who are listening or engaging or even in this room who have... Um, Come to identify with Jesus, and that is a really good thing. You've trusted Jesus for your salvation and for your forgiveness, and perhaps you have like just been walking the path with him. You've received his gift of grace and acceptance, and your life is actively being changed by him. The call on you is to be baptized, right? So, uh, so this is the call. Mark your identity with this action and be baptized baptized. Mark your identity with this action and be baptized. So, so that's your next step, right? Like if you're wondering, you're, you're a follower in Jesus and you haven't taken the step of baptism, you're wondering like, how do I go deeper with my faith? How do I initiate something? How do I do something new? Like I want to tell you your next step is to be baptized, right? Follow Jesus into baptism. So if, you, if, if this is you, and you're, you're hearing this, you're processing this, you're like, I follow Jesus, but I'm not baptized yet. I want you, like, please come and talk to me because let's take that next step of you making public this reality 
that you have experienced personally. Uh, Number three, uh, the, the third kind of person, the infant baptized Jesus follower. So this is one of those realities that Paul didn't have to deal with as he was writing to people. So over the years, infant baptism has become a practice in various kinds of churches. We don't practice it here, but we have to recognize the practice because many, there were many among us, in fact myself, I was baptized as an infant, many among us were baptized as infants. So there are kind of two basic ways of thinking about infant baptism. Number one, it is a cultural ritual to secure salvation and spiritual protection. So that's one way of thinking about infant baptism. And for what it's worth, this is an affront to the gospel because it places the power of salvation in an action that you do rather than in the grace of Jesus Christ. Right? It is by grace through faith that you have been saved and that not of yourself. There is no action that we can perform to secure our salvation. It all belongs to Jesus alone. This was the kind of baptism that I was baptized into. Right? I, uh, was, my parents were uh, some version of Methodist, and uh, they thought it was really important for me to get baptized. They walked me through this cultural ritual to kind of ensure that uh, I was going to be covered, that I was going to be saved. But my parents didn't have any really like working faith in that place like they weren't interested necessarily I mean we went to church every once in a while right but um and then I met Jesus and made my faith my own in high school and Jesus started changing my life and you know what I was baptized in a public pool near my hometown right because I saw what Jesus had done and I said I want to make public this personal faith that I have experienced and then you know what my, Je- my, my parents started coming to that church too. And Jesus met them and started changing in their lives. And you know what they did? They both got baptized too, right? So that's the process that they walked through, right? So if your history of infant baptism is kind of this cultural ritual that's meant to secure salvation somehow for you, I would implore you to be baptized as a believer in Jesus, right? Make your faith public. So that's one way of thinking. The second way of thinking is that you are kind of welcomed into the church and initiated on the path of discipleship, right? That's, that's how kind of uh, another way of thinking about infant baptism is that as an infant, when you were baptized, you were invited into the church and initiated on the pathway of discipleship. And I can tell you like good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, you know, gospel-preaching folks practice baptism this way. In fact, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, like we have a lot of space for people who practice multiple different ways in our denomination. So if you come from a church background where this is your story, then you actually, as you look at the span of your life, you see your baptism as the beginning of your discipleship. Right, so, so we, you and I, might disagree on how we ought to practice baptism, and I would still kind of ask you to consider being baptized now that you've uh, placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you know that your baptism was your public identification with Christ, and you are convinced of that, you're aware of that in your head, it's not just some kind of spiritual or cultural ritual, then I want to let you know that I'll like, kind of respect you on that. I'll, like, there's tons of space for that to exist. So, so whether, where, no matter where you find yourself in this uh, kind of frame, I would encourage you to strongly consider being baptized as a believer. All right, finally, and this is kind of where we get to, this is the one group that the, Paul was talking to. There's the baptized Jesus follower, right? These are the people that he's working with. His whole reason for bringing baptism up is so that we could understand the rhythm that it creates in our life. Grace is not freedom to live however you want. Grace is freedom to experience life with God. So uh, to the baptized Jesus follower, the call is live out the rhythm that your baptism started. Live out the rhythm that your baptism started. So uh, this gets us to our second question. What rhythm does baptism establish? What rhythm does baptism establish? Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what's Paul doing? Well, he's continuing to speak hope. He's continuing to talk about the gifts that we have been given. And death with Jesus through faith, that this gives us a promise of somehow being able to overcome death. 
So he goes on in verse 6. He says, uh, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So when you decide to follow Jesus, when you experience the love and the acceptance of God through Jesus' self-giving love on the cross, then you know what happens? is that the motivations of your heart begin to change. Right? Something that kind of was the opposite of what you deserved has now been given to you. Right, And it reflects the depth of God's love for you. So I say all of that. I just like, he just got done writing these words in Romans chapter 5. Right? So we don't have all the context of the entire book of Romans and what he's kind of walking through. But in Romans chapter 5, he wrote these really specific words. And uh, kind of the ideas that he's trying to get across is if you have an encounter with this grace that Jesus has accomplished, like if you actually meet the love of God in Jesus, like you don't have a choice to continue on sinning. Like you don't have a choice to decide to remain in sin. Something powerful happens to your heart and it reshapes you. It reforms you. So I just, like, we're going to stop. We're going to slow down. This isn't on the slides. I want you to listen to these words. In fact, I'd ask everybody to close your eyes. I would just want to block out distraction and receive these words about the love of God. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, that's the good news. That's the gospel that we have been invited into. This is the means by which God brings us into fellowship with himself. So what that means is that if you've received the love of God in Jesus, sin is no longer your master. It used to be. right? But now you are alive to God. Sin no longer dictates your life. God dictates your life. And for what that's worth, that does not mean that you never sin again. It means that because Jesus saved you, you can start living transformed. And And when you fail, you have this amazing opportunity. You can actually rejoice in the middle of your failure because after you failed, Jesus freely accepts you into fellowship with himself. You repent and you step back into obedience. And when you fail again, guess what? You are welcomed into fellowship. And so you repent and you step back into relationship. Right? Before, sin dictated your purpose and identity. It dictated the kind of relationship you actually couldn't have with God. But now that Jesus has set you free from sin, It gives you a new purpose and destiny. It gives you a new ability to be constantly welcomed into the presence of your Father. So he goes on in verse 8 through 10. He says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So verse 11, before we get to verse 11. All of this work, all of this energy poured out to help you understand what your baptism represents. Right, to help you understand the rhythm that was initiated in the middle of your baptism. And he kind of says the same thing 15 different ways to make sure that you don't miss exactly what you are partaking in. So now, verse 11. So you also must consider 
yourselves dead to sin. He uses that word consider. He's talking about reckoning. Like, uh, imagine you have accounts and you have parts of yourself that are kind of attributed to the wrong account. And uh, the idea that he's presenting is that you as the accountant kind of have to take these parts that belong in the wrong place and you have to reconcile these accounts. You have to bring uh, the pieces of your life that are out of alignment. You have to kind of figure those. You have to reckon yourselves dead to sin. Right? So, so move yourself into the life column. What places in your life are you not in the life column? You have to move the figures over. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I do, I recognize sometimes when I preach up here, I do talk with some regularity about the, the concept of dying to self or dying to sin. Uh, about, uh, and even in this passage, it talks about crucifying our old selves, about coming alive to God. And then I like realize, what in the heck does that really look like? Like, what does that mean? You can say it until you're blue in the face, but what, like, how does that work itself out? So I want to give us this as we move forward this morning. What rhythm does baptism establish? How do we reckon ourselves? How do we consider ourselves dead to sin? The rhythm that baptism establishes is this. It is grace-cultivated, love-motivated obedience. Grace-cultivated, love-motivated obedience. I gave myself freely to sin, and Jesus gave himself freely to save me. I chose my way over God's. Jesus chose death to earn my favor with God. Right, so I recognize that some people, as we process this idea of salvation and understanding what it is that Jesus has done for us, uh, there's a tendency for us to toil and beat ourselves up because, goodness, we're not performing well enough. And I'm tired of not being able to perform well enough. I thought Jesus saved me. I thought I would be further down the line at this point. I thought, and I just can't do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I'm not accomplishing the things that I'm supposed to accomplish. And so I'm not, like, I, I wonder if he, I can even be accepted with him. I wonder if I can even be welcomed by him, right? Right, and those who toil in that space, I want to... I want to tell you something discouraging and then I want to tell you something encouraging. The discouraging thing that I want to tell you is this. You were and are more desperately sinful than you can even begin to imagine. But God loves you. And Jesus has invited you into that love with his death on the cross. Right? Like if we could grasp the gravity of our sinfulness, I think we would really begin to see Jesus' acceptance as freedom. Okay, so what? So what? I have a few to share with us this morning. Uh, two. Number one, I want to give us a spiritual practice, right? So each week in these rhythms, I want to give us some tools that we can start employing or at least kind of check back in with ourselves and ensure that we are employing. So, so last week I gave us the spiritual practice of the examine, asking ourselves questions throughout our day. Where do I see God working? Where am I meeting him? Where have I missed him? Where does he want to do more work, right? That was our spiritual practice last week, the examine. The spiritual practice this week is confession and repentance. This is a practice that we employ and re-employ and re-employ and re-employ throughout the Christian life. Right, so instead of hiding your sin in fear of what others will think, instead of being crushed by shame, instead of avoiding God because you feel like you've messed up too much to be able to approach him, what if you believed in the, the moment immediately following your sin that God is waiting in that moment to show up to you and meet you. That God is inviting you into gracious acceptance through Jesus. Right, so I want to give you kind of three questions to help guide you in your confession and repentance. And let this become for you a daily rhythm. Right, because there is a reality like I can't go five minutes without, at least in, at the very least in my thoughts, missing God in some way. 
following my own desires rather than his. Right, so, so here are three questions. Number one, how have I failed to love God and love my neighbor? Right, because that's the, that's the core of everything that we're called to. That's the core of where sin is found. It's in failure to love God and love neighbor. So, so how have I failed to love God and love neighbor? Number two, who should I confess my failure to? And you might go, oh, that's easy. You confess your failure to God. And I, okay, like I'll take that. But you know what? The Bible says confess your sins to one another. Right? So there's, like, there's this opportunity for us, as the Lord is doing something in us, to use another brother or sister to help encourage us and build us up. And so we take the opportunity, maybe, to confess to a brother or sister, hey, uh, this is what's happening with me right now. This is where I've done something wrong. And this is especially true if you failed to love your neighbor. You should confess to your neighbor who you failed to love, right? Right? But... Uh, we take the time to invest in relationship with other people and we have this space where we can confess and, and, and make a, a decision to repent, uh, figure out some other way that we're going to operate. And then number three, in the middle of all of that, invite the Holy Spirit to let the love of God transform my heart. So all of these words about uh, you have been freed from sin, you have been accepted by God. You have been, the power of sin over you has been broken, right? That's all true in the sense that we've been accepted through the blood of Jesus. But then the freedom is employed practically in our lives when the Holy Spirit begins working and actually makes us able not to sin. Like empowers us, gives us the ability to do something other than sin. To actually do things that bring pleasure to God, that, uh, that God highly favors, right? So in the middle of this space where you're confessing and seeking to repent, there's an opportunity for you to invite the Holy Spirit to work in that, right? And actually start transforming and reshaping your heart because you've welcomed the grace of Jesus into your life, a grace that you do not deserve. Right? And that, it's that free and ready acceptance that you keep running back to and keep running back to and keep running back to that shows you just how good God has been to you. Right, so confess and repent. I just want to talk to you real quick about what this has looked like for me. So there's a moment of transparency with you. Uh, recently, let's talk like within the last month, um, last six weeks, uh, I've been sensing a lack in myself, a lack of dependence upon God and intentionality in my own prayer life. Right, so what that means is that uh, if I'm by myself and I'm praying uh, and I'm just kind of working through something, uh, my mind is wandering. I'm disengaged. I'm concerned with my own thoughts or desires. I'm not, um, not at all even like connected to what it is that the Lord wants me to pray for, and I'm easily distracted. And all of that says something about how sin has impacted my heart, how sin has impacted my attitudes, right? And so the Father is graciously inviting to meet with him in spite of how much I want to pay attention to other things. So what I did is I set up a structure to help me engage with him with some intentionality. I realized that I was doing this, and so I started these uh, Zoom prayer meetings on Tuesday and Thursday morning, and we're adjusting the time and figuring out what works for everybody. And uh, there are a few mornings where nobody has shown up to those Zoom prayer meetings except myself. But let me tell you, there's still incredible spiritual benefit for that in me because it has forced me with that time, that hour, to be very intentional with my prayer life, to ensure that I'm focusing on the things that I ought to be focusing on. Right, So there is this work that has happened where the Holy Spirit is graciously meeting me in those moments where I am like kind of making a decision to turn away from something that has not been so helpful to something that is more helpful and taking me deeper with Him. Right, And so that's like a small example of the series of processes of confession and repentance and confession and repentance that we engage as we walk through our life. And Christ shapes our hearts into hearts that love him. So that's, uh, that's the first so what. The second so what is a simple question. What is your next step of obedience? 
right? So maybe for some of you, that next step of obedience is to be baptized. And if that's the case, I want you to reach out to me. I want you to find me after service. I want you to talk to me because we need to take, make an opportunity to make that happen. Uh, Maybe for you, you are aware of some sin in your life where you have been neglecting God and prioritizing yourself and he's calling you into repentance. Well then, confess and repent. Find somebody to confess to. Repent, work out a plan. Or maybe, and I get the sense that a lot of us could fall into this boat, maybe you just aren't really clear on what's next. Right, like you you don't know what your clearest next step of obedience is. I tell you, if you seek God in his word deeply in prayer, he will clarify those things for you. And the decision to not be doing that is actually a decision of disobedience. Right? So for you, like if you don't know clearly what your next step is, then I want to invite you to seeking God in his word and in prayer because as you do that, then he will clarify your next step for you. Right? So for those who are in Christ, the Father, I tell us to confess and repent because the Father is extending freely the grace to those who confess and repent. So uh, I want you to hear, uh, this is a quote from an old professor of mine at Trinity Um, And I appreciate his words along these lines, and I can sting just a little bit, so be prepared for the sting. This is what he writes. He says, um, his name is D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. Instead, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. That's the tendency inside of us, which means that we actually have to make some effort, right? And in the making of that effort, don't miss what he said at the very beginning. It is a grace-driven effort. So along those lines, I want you to once again hear these words from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me please? Holy Spirit, as we um, just start prodded by you and um, the things you bring to our awareness and your call for growth and your call to be aware of a next step and your call to be in your word and engaged in prayer and your call to deeper relationship with you, as we're aware of all of that, our tendency is to go, okay, perform, 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 perform. And when we get into that mindset, we get into a mindset that says we do the work and then we miss, we miss what's actually true, which is that we are desperately weak and sinful and against you at the core of who we are. That is the, the kind of the shape that our hearts have taken. And that in the taking of that shape, we have missed something about who you are. And you meet us in that space and extend to us, Jesus. 
And it's, so, it's not so often that our hearts are overwhelmed by the love of God, but when we recognize the depth of our own sinfulness, we then recognize that when Jesus actually died for us, the one whom we offended would extend himself as a sacrifice for us in our place. And the Holy Spirit applies that truth to our hearts. Then what we get is a grace-cultivated Love motivated obedience. So Holy Spirit, my ask in this moment, my ask in this time is that you would allow the grace of Jesus to cultivate in us God's love. To cultivate in us a deep love for God. Holy Spirit, I ask... We've talked a lot about a lot of details about baptism and what it means to live according to grace and uh, how we are, are not set free to sin, but we're set free to you. And we've talked about all of those realities. And right now, I just ask that um, as we're trying to process details in our head, that you would uh, uh, kind of stop us in the midst of that. And Holy Spirit, I want to call on you to pour out your love in the hearts of your people to pour out a deep love for you that actually makes us into the people that you desire us to be. That as we walk in faith with you and as we recognize those places where we're not being obedient, that we would quickly confess and repent because you are extending to us your very love and grace in those moments. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us be shaped by the rhythm that was established in our baptism. That we have a new identity. We are not the worst thing that we've ever done. But we have been welcomed joyfully into your presence. Thank you for these gifts. And let our hearts be so celebratory and thankful and joyful at the fact that we have been given something great that we absolutely did not deserve. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.